Good evening. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the LSE for this evening's event. My name is Henry Little, and together with Josephine Breeze, we are the directors of Breeze Little, a commercial gallery based in Clerkenwell, London, just round the corner. We pride ourselves on a meaningful off-site education programme, and this is the sixth lecture in our series, proudly in association with LSE Arts. Firstly, we would like to thank the Zinger Zaharia family for their generous support of our education programme. Their ongoing enthusiasm for our lecture series is invaluable and greatly appreciated. Thank you very much indeed. It is a great pleasure to introduce tonight's speaker. Fiametta Rocco was born and brought up in Kenya. She came to Britain to go to Oxford, where she read Arabic and went into journalism as soon as she graduated. <coughs> Her writing has won awards on both sides of the Atlantic, and she has been named British Feature Writer of the Year. She has been the books and arts editor of The Economist since 2003. She reviews fiction for the paper and has written extensively about the art market. Last year, she travelled to the Middle East, India and China to look at their museums. In December 2013, The Economist published Temples of Delight, her 10-page special report on the future of museums. Tonight's lecture, entitled Museum Madness, addresses the dramatic expansion of museums globally, posing the question, will they become white elephants? For those Twitter users in the audience, the hashtag for today's event is LSE Museums, and I'd also like you to put your phones on silent so as not to disrupt this evening's lecture. The talk is being recorded and will hopefully be released as a podcast following the event, with, uh, as long as there are no technical difficulties. Finally, at the end, we'll be chairing questions, uh, so please hold on to them until then. Finally, I'd like you to join me in welcoming Fiametta. Thank you, Henry. I am delighted to be here at the LSE tonight to talk to you about museums. I'd like to say thank you to Henry, to Josephine, especially to our sponsors, the Singer Zaharia family, and thank you all for coming out on a very cold night. If you look at the LSE's website and you click on the tab Life at the LSE, you'll see that one of the things it lists, and it's the only university in London to do this, one of the things it lists as a highlight of student life in London is the city's museums. There are 11 of them just in this area, beginning with the British Museum. Now, last Tuesday, the BM held one of its regular debates, and the argument that was being made was that the BM was a core part of what they call the knowledge quarter of Bloomsbury, Camden, and Hoban. Certainly, it's come a very long way since that famous print gin lane that Hogarth made two years before the British Museum was founded. It was also argued at the debate that the BM's founding principle, which was to make the greatest knowledge available to everyone, is as valid now, if not more, than when the BM opened in 1759. And that its future aim should be to take visitors on what one of the speakers, Sir Paul Nurse, President of the Royal Society, called a journey of discovery without boundaries. 
The debate was part of a series that the BM has been holding this year about the Museum of the Future. It's got its own hashtag. But it could just as easily have been a debate about the University of the Future, the LSE of the Future, because what it was really about was what kind of city, what kind of world do we want to live in? I want to talk to you tonight about museums because all over the world, not just here in central London, museums are at the centre of similar debates about where we stand in the world, how we're connected to one another, and what sort of world do we really want to live in. Three years ago, uh, McKinsey, American Consulting Group, set itself a very simple question. What makes a city great? The timing of it was very good. In 2008, for the first time in history, half the world's population was living in towns or cities. By 2030, six out of every ten people will be living in a city. By 2050, it'll be seven out of every ten people. Now, in Britain, we're already in that future. Back in 1950, the proportion of the British population living in cities was 79%, just about 8 out of 10, so already a huge figure. By 2030, that figure is set to rise to 92%, more than 9 out of 10 compared with 6 out of 10 generally for the rest of the world. But as you can see, for everywhere, the trend is pretty much the same. So it made sense for McKinsey to ask, what makes a city great? Well, first of all, they concluded, you need green spaces and great public transport. London, Vienna, Sydney, and Singapore aren't necessarily green cities in the modern sense, but they have the most green spaces for their size. So it's not surprising at all that all four of these cities rank very, very high in the lists of popular cities. Now, in the late 19th century, when London already had a subway, New York still depended on horse-drawn transport. The horses there were greatly loved, but they were incredibly slow and very, very smelly, so that people swarmed into the city slums just to avoid long journeys to and from work. By the mid-1890s, the Lower East Side in Manhattan was one of the most crowded places on Earth. Its tenements, as one recent historian has written, were wet, cold, rancid, and infested with vermin. That's not what you want if you want your city to thrive. What you want are lots of parks and clean, quick, crime-free transport. The second thing you need to make a city great is lots of immigrants. I know that there are people here with whom this is not a very popular subject, but London knows how well this works. Immigrants bring energy, they bring investment, they bring ideas, they bring great food. All these are tools that make life better. Third, you need really good culture. At the beginning of this year, Boris Johnson drew quite a detailed picture of what this meant when he presented a study on culture and cities to the World Economic Forum at Davos. And what he had to say was this. From ancient Athens, Renaissance Florence and Elizabethan London, 
to modern centres like New York or Mumbai. Cities have been the places where culture develops and moves forward. Cities can support the widest range of cultural activity. They have very big audiences, both resident and tourist. They have strong business sectors, which are a source of funds and a market for creative goods. Cities can support the high fixed costs of building cultural infrastructure, as well as the infrastructure of commissioning, management, distribution and production. The diversity that is common to cities allows them to sustain a great variety of art forms, while their dynamism, their constantly changing populations, their international connections, these are the things that make them hubs of new cultural ideas and knowledge. So culture gives cities a very distinctive appeal. In the era of globalization, World cities are increasingly competing with each other. They compete for the headquarters of multinational firms or for the right to host international sporting and cultural events. More and more, cultural prowess and economic success are seen as interlinked. So those cities with historically strong cultural offerings, and we all know them, London, New York, Paris, they see culture as a vital part of their economic strength. For Boris Johnson, this is expressed in two ways. He says that the commercial forms of culture, the creative industries, make up a large and growing share of the economies of large cities. Culture in all its diverse forms is also central to what makes a city appealing to educated people and therefore to the businesses who want to employ them. In the globalised knowledge economy, having a well-educated workforce is the key to success, and those workers demand stimulating creative environments. So what's known as a rich and vibrant cultural sector becomes in itself an indirect source of economic success. Think of the global cities that you know or that many of you probably even come from. London, of course, but also New York, Paris, Tokyo, Amsterdam. They all score incredibly high on number of museums, public libraries, theatres, concert halls, comedy clubs, art galleries, cinemas, film festivals and bookshops. But they're also old cities with very well-established entertainment and arts districts, which have developed organically over a long period of time, centuries often, without any formal investment strategy. But what happens if you're a relatively new city, the capital of a country that, say, has struck oil? Well, if you have struck oil, you're very lucky. The answer is easy. You build your culture sector from the top down. A huge amount of cultural infrastructure today is increasingly planned on a large scale, either by or with city support. Think of Saadiyat Island in Abu Dhabi, an area that will be a quarter of the size of Paris. It's being built literally out of sand. It's on a sandbank off the northwest side of the city, and I'm going to talk about Abu Dhabi later on. 
Think of Beijing's Olympic Green, the cultural district in Dallas, Chicago's Millennium Park, Kowloon, West Kowloon Cultural District in Hong Kong, Singapore's Esplanade, and Doha's Musharraf District. All these are different modes of high-profile urban developments that have or are being planned to embrace cultural activities as a vital part of the public realm. Now, the inspiration here, of course, was Bilbao. The opening of the Guggenheim Museum in Bilbao in 1997 showed just what an ambitious and energetic municipality could do to help turn a city around. It wasn't just a museum. There was a whole plan that went together. 25 years ago, Bilbao was a small provincial Spanish city with a dying industrial heart. The Guggenheim was part of this huge development plan, which involved a new subway line, so they had transport, redevelopment of the river frontage, green space, and a new airport. Frank Gehry's museum was just the icing on the cake. And this is what the icing looks like in numbers. The Guggenheim is reckoned to have contributed 2.5 billion euros to the GDP of the Basque province since it was inaugurated. That's about 2 billion pounds. Visitor spending in just the first three years, first three years after the museum opened, raised more than 100 million euros in taxes for the regional government. That was enough to recoup all of the construction costs and leave something over. Last year, more than a million people visited the Guggenheim in Bilbao, at least half of them from abroad. This was the highest number for a long time, and it was the third highest number ever. So the building continues to attract visitors, even though it's no longer a novelty, and the collection is quite modest. It's pretty impressive when you think that these results have been generated against the worst financial crisis Spain has seen since the Civil War in the 1930s. And it's no wonder that Iñaki Ascuna, who runs Bilbao, has recently been named the world's best mayor. But other cities that don't have historic districts like we do, they look to Bilbao as a model for what vision and imagination can achieve. And it's not for nothing that in academic studies of urban regeneration, this is now written of as the Bilbao effect. AEA Consulting is a small New York firm that specializes in cultural projects. And they reckon that over the next decade, more than 40 new cultural districts are due to be built in various countries at an estimated cost of $250 billion. Sounds a lot, and it will undoubtedly end up being more. Concrete has been poured for some. Others are still at the planning stage. They aren't all on the global radar yet, but the list is already pretty impressive. Cape Town, Cairo, Baghdad, Basra, Kuwait, Beirut, Riyadh, Sharjah, Lhasa in Tibet, at least 20 cities in China. Remember that there are 100 cities 
of more than 5 billion people, i.e. cities bigger than Berlin, that are coming into existence in China. 20 of them are building whole new cultural districts. There's also Busan in South Korea, which is already the center of a world-class film festival. Sydney, Perth, Brisbane, Melbourne. Closer to home, Vienna, Prague, Copenhagen, Helsinki, Budapest, Berlin, Warsaw, St. Petersburg, Malmö, Tirana in Albania, Kiev, then right across the United States and Canada, further south, Sao Paulo, Belo Horizonte in Brazil, and Buenos Aires in Argentina. That's a huge list. The most talked about projects are probably those in the Gulf, not least because we haven't seen them yet and because their patrons are the biggest buyers of art in the world. But they're also interesting for other reasons. Qatar and Abu Dhabi have chosen two completely different models. Abu Dhabi decided that they would import culture wholesale, and they've devolved responsibility for building two of their museums to the Guggenheim and the Louvre. And their plans are incredibly ambitious. The Louvre Abu Dhabi will open in just over a year's time. They've just finished putting the roof on, and they're now they're beginning to build the inside. They are getting advice, loans, exhibitions, and a collection of their own with French help. It's a huge government-to-government contract. Last 30 years, the French will make a billion euros out of it. The Louvre in Paris is also likely to provide the Abu Dhabi Museum with its French, with its first director, who will, of course, be French. But that said, the Louvre Abu Dhabi is not going to be a branch of the French Museum. It's not even going to be a semi-autonomous brand or a semi-autonomous extension of the Louvre. The aim there is to create the first universal museum in the Arab world, a museum that will bring together works from all over the planet, from every century, to give people some sense of what was going on in China, in the Middle East, in Europe at the same time. The project is just beginning. We've seen one small exhibition in Paris in the middle of last year. It's very, very, very hard to tell whether it will have real appeal or whether it'll just be an empty trophy project. But they are thinking very, very hard about what museums can do for the region. In Qatar, you can already begin to see what a different kind of cultural district might mean. Because unlike Abu Dhabi, Qatar did not sign up to well-known Western museum brands. They decided to focus instead on a homegrown model. And they began by building an Islamic collection. One member of the Qatari royal family, in particular, Sheikh Saud Thani, who died here in London just about a fortnight ago, spent 25 years buying the very best Islamic pieces that came out of the European collections that had been built up in the 19th century. <coughs> and the result is the Museum of Islamic Art in Doha. It's one of the world's really great museums, and if you've never been there, but you get a chance, jump at it. Now, Sheikh Saud's brother, Sheikh Hassan, is interested in Orientalism, which is 
interesting for somebody from there. He buys chiefly European Orientalist art from the 19th century. He has an enormous collection and another of Middle Eastern modernism, particularly from Egypt. And it's possible in due course that we'll see more museums that will be devoted to those areas in particular. Now, Qatar and Abu Dhabi have grown rich on oil and gas. They were lucky. But they know that one day these resources are going to run out. They're both thinking 30 years from now, and they're devoted to creating a knowledge economy. They're building schools, they're building universities, libraries, publishing houses, and these museums are part of that policy. They want to educate their own people, but they also want to make their cities culture hubs that will attract visitors from Europe, from Russia, from India, and from further east in Asia. And they're not the only ones. In Hong Kong, M Plus, New Museum of Chinese Contemporary Art in the West Kowloon Cultural District, wants to be Asia's answer to Tate Modern. In fact, they hired Tate's former director. They also have a new building that they've commissioned, and it will be open probably in about 2017. But in the meantime, M Plus has been focusing on what the Chinese call software, the collection and the curators, rather than just the hardware, which is the building. And they've been pretty successful so far. They've secured two large collections of Chinese contemporary art through a mixture of gifts and purchases. One is a large holding by a former Swiss ambassador to Beijing, Uli Sig, He's a fascinating man, he's about that high, incredibly energetic. He was an early and very, very, very busy collector of Chinese contemporary art because he was posted to Beijing as a diplomat in the early 1980s and so was a witness to the very beginnings of the Chinese contemporary art movement that's now become known around the world. And in June 2012, Uli Sig announced that the very large part of his collection, and that means thousands of pieces would go to M+. The second collection M+, secured, was accumulated by a Chinese businessman called Guanyi. It's much smaller, 37 or 38 pieces, but it's important for two reasons. First of all, it includes early examples of work from outside Beijing that have been shown internationally, particularly of artists from the Pearl River Delta. And secondly, Guanyi is a young businessman from mainland China. He might have been expected to give his collection to a mainland museum, but instead he chose M Plus in Hong Kong. Now many of these cultural hubs are being planned around museums like this. And on the face of it, this is quite a curious phenomenon because we're in an age when people have got more choices than ever before about how they spend their leisure time. When once we would have travelled to see the world, now the world comes to us via television, via the internet, conveniently delivered to our laptops and our smartphones. So why would you traipse around a museum if most of the stuff you can see at the click of a mouse? But the statistics seem to show that museums are incredibly important. Globally, 
their numbers certainly have increased enormously. Two decades ago, there were about 23,000 museums. Now there are 55,000. In 2012, American museums received 850 million visitors, nearly a quarter more than the figure of a decade earlier. And that was more than all the big league sporting events and theme parks combined. In England, over half the adult population visited a museum or gallery in the last year. How many people here have been to a museum or a gallery in the last year? Way more than half. Excellent. This is the highest figure since the government began collecting figures on this. In Sweden, three out of four adults go to a museum at least once a year. In Paris, the Louvre which is the world's most popular museum, had 10 million visitors last year, a million more than 2011, largely because of the opening of their new Islamic galleries. China will soon have 4,000 museums. Now, that's only a quarter of the number that there is in America, but they are racing to catch up. When I was there last year on this trip that Henry mentioned, um, An Lai Shun, who's the vice president of the Chinese Museums Association, told me that in 2012, a record number of museums had opened in China, 451. So museums are going through something of a golden global age. And there are a number of reasons for this. Some of it has to do with changes in demand, so in the rich world and in some developing countries, the proportion of people who are going on to higher education has risen enormously. Better educated folk are much more likely to be museum goers. They want to see for themselves where they fit in to the wider world and they look to museums for guidance. In the developed world, Museums are being championed by a huge variety of interest groups. You've got city fathers like uh, Georges Pompidou, who commissioned the Pompidou Centre. They see iconic buildings and great collections as a tourist draw. But they're also being championed by urban planners like the mayor of Bilbao, who hope that museums will act as a magic wand to bring blighted city areas back to life by the media who like to hype blockbuster exhibitions, by rich people who want to put their wealth in the service of philanthropy, or as one museum director calls it, it's a way for rich people to launder their souls. But for young people, and this is much more important, museums seem to be a source of something authentic when they start to get bored of their electronic entertainments. Now, in the affluent parts of the developing world, museum building is being driven mainly by governments who want their countries to be regarded as culturally sophisticated. They see museums as symbols of confidence, as sources of public education, places where a young country, and this is particularly important of what may have been a divided young country, a place where a young country can present a national narrative. So the number of museums around the world is growing exponentially, and so is the number of museum visitors. But in the midst of all this euphoric pouring of cement, what are going to be the problems of the next 20 to 20 years? 
Well, in China and the Middle East, where museums seem to be springing up like weeds, the challenges are many and particularly mind-numbing. What to put in these museums? Who will run them? Where will curators be trained? Will there be enough local people really interested in being curators? I saw a museum in China last year that absolutely flabbergasted me. It was on what's called the Sixth Outer Ring Road of Beijing, so way past Beijing Airport, in that zone where fields are being eaten up by um, urban development. So you've got buildings, but the roads are still very dusty, there are pigs on the pavement, and on this road was an incredibly beautifully constructed building called the Red Brick Museum. It's a whole city block long. The first odd thing I noticed about it was that the exhibition it was advertising, which I knew had been opened by the Crown Prince of Denmark, had closed six months before. The lights were on, the air conditioning was on, there was a ticket desk with somebody selling tickets, beautiful white walls, but when you went inside, there was absolutely nothing. It was like walking into an empty Olympic-sized swimming pool. So, more difficult than even finding the staffing in countries where there are no curatorial projects, there are no curatorial courses, certainly for the governments in charge is going to be the question of debate and discussion. How much and how openly will you let your populations debate the issues of the day? Now, one place that has thrown down this gauntlet is in the West Bank. As we speak, a new museum is being built in the hills above Ramallah, just beside Birzeit University. The idea took root as far back as 1997, when the museum wanted to dedicate itself to preserving and commemorating recent Palestinian history, and particularly the events of 1948. And it decided then to call itself the Palestinian Museum of Memory. Now today, its directors admit that this would implicitly position it as a counterpart to the Israeli Holocaust Memorial Museum. Many Palestinian cultural institutions set up comparisons in this way, but they often end up, and they'll admit this themselves, they often end up coming across as defensive reactions to Israeli actions, seeking not so much to explore Palestinian heritage as to prove that it exists. So the founders of the Palestinian Museum realized that far from embracing this phenomenon, they had to distance themselves from it. They had to create an institution that would stand on its own. So they renamed it the Palestinian Museum. And the renaming symbolizes a shift in emphasis from defending the past to providing a cultural institution that would empower and engage Palestinian population both at home and abroad. And to emphasize that point just one step further, its full name will be the Palestinian Museum, a safe place for unsafe ideas. Now, in the developed world, debate is also an issue. Things have changed hugely since the 19th century, the days of a man called Benjamin Ives Gilman. For 30 years, Gilman was the secretary of the Boston Museum of Fine Arts. 
And he argued that curators should treat museums as having a holy purpose. Collections should be contemplated for their aesthetic qualities alone, he said, with no need for narrative, for context, or for explanation. And the best place to do that, he believed, was in a museum, because a museum is, in essence, a temple. Well, fast forward 100 years to the writings of Kenneth Hudson, who was a British uh, trend spotter of museums. And in a book called Museums of Influence, Kenneth Hudson wrote that the most fundamental change that has affected museums is the now almost universal conviction that they exist in order to serve the public. Amazing to think that that is a relatively new idea, except that it has a root in a way that goes back directly to the 18th century of museums that I mentioned at the beginning in relation to the British Museum, that its founding principle was to make the greatest knowledge available to everyone. It was said that it was a place for the private study of every citizen. It was funded by Parliament, wasn't controlled by it. It was for public benefit and not for private gain, charitably bound on behalf of the beneficiaries, whom the British Museum described as all studious and curious persons, both native and foreign. This was an idea that caught on very quickly and not so long after the British Museum opened the government was trying to find out who was using public collections and they asked all the employers in Westminster to let them know where their workmen went on their days off day off probably so Jackson the Builders had 388 workers and those workers paid 412 visits to the British Museum in just one year. Remember, it wasn't free then. You had to apply for a ticket. By the way, the only people who hadn't paid any visits were from John Murray, the publisher. On Easter Monday, 1837, the first time the BM opened on a public holiday, 23,000 people came. Those numbers would still strike us as astonishing today, so... It's not surprising now that we've gone back to something of that Enlightenment spirit. Museums are still showcases for collections, as the BM was when it was opened, but they've been transformed. Victoria Newhouse, who's the um, author of a recent book called Towards a New Museum, describes them as having moved from being restrained containers to exuberant companions. In New York, there's a little company, new company, called Museum Hack, and it organises private museum tours. They will organise and podcast your wedding proposal at the Metropolitan Museum. (laughs) Seriously, you need to get in touch with someone whose job title is the customer services guru at Museum Hack. Her name is Nadia, and she'll organise everything for you. So museums have become... Pits of popular debate, they become places of fun, they become places that are cool. They become places where children go for sleepovers. You can go to the British Museum with your kids once a year and you can sleep in the room with the mummies. So no longer should museums be places where people look on in awe as they did in 
Benjamin Ives Gilman's day, but places where they go to look, to learn, to argue, as they would here in any university or in an art school. As Nicholas Sirota says, a museum today must be a forum as much as a treasure box. Now, some people may turn up their noses at this, fearing that a lot of what goes on at museums today is too close to becoming entertainment. But modern visitors like being entertained, and they're going to drift away unless museums engage with them emotionally and intellectually. So who are going to be the winners and the losers? Who are going to be the white elephants? Museums are meant to preserve and safeguard the collections entrusted to them. That makes them, on the whole, quite conservative. But with public funds likely to remain very tight, especially in Europe for the foreseeable future, and private money free to back institutions that are seen as winners, museums will have to do some very innovative thinking over the next 20 years, both to deal with unavoidable changes, but also to seize new opportunities. The obvious winners will be the big institutions in the main capital cities that attract high-spending visitors. Now, the BM is one of these, just as the LSE is in the university field. But tiny local museums that have huge community support will also continue to be popular and to be cherished. Small niche museums with imaginative leadership will also retain a following. Now, when I was working on my special report for The Economist last year, I asked every museum director I interviewed to pick a favourite, and I was astonished how many of them said the same place. It's called the Chichu Art Museum in Naoshima in Japan. You have to travel eight hours by train from Tokyo, then you get on a boat, and then when you're done with your tour, it's so late you have to stay the night. And there are only three things there to see. By contrast, second-tier museums that try to be encyclopedic on limited funds will have, are having, look at Detroit, are having a very, very hard time. The outlook for public funding of museums is bleak, especially here in Europe, but there are also institutions in America that are suffering. Their museums are registered as not-for-profit organizations, and they get huge tax concessions, both at state and federal level. But this arrangement is coming under enormous pressure. People see it as a way of using poor people's tax money to pay for rich people's cultural pastimes. And I think that this points to a wider problem. Museum visitors in Europe and in America, notwithstanding all the school's visits, the children who sleep in the mummy's room and everything, they're still overwhelmingly well-educated, white, middle-aged, and middle-class. In America, minorities make up a third of the population. Only 20% of museum staff and only 9% of museum visitors. In 30 years' time, only half of America's population will be white. So if the museums are to be relevant to their local communities and to keep up the flow of visitors, especially in the southern and um, western states, 
they will have to appeal to radically different audiences and they'll have to rethink the relationship with those who are voting on public funding for their museums. Now, consumers of culture, I don't need to say this to you, but you know it, consumers of culture, prepare, they really prefer to decide for themselves how they want knowledge and information to be served up to them. You can see that. There's a huge growing popularity of pop-up museums, of crowdsourced projects, of exhibitions like Pompeii, which are seen in cinemas as if they were operas. To keep the public coming and ensure their own survival, museums need to try much harder to give people what they want. Many institutions in the West really already know that. They certainly understand it, even if they can't quite do it themselves. But developing countries are waking up to the idea and really not a full time. If you go to India, for instance, most museums are completely moribund. The National Museum in Delhi has not had a director for eight years. In Kolkata's Indian Museum, the oldest and biggest in the region, it's not just the bear in the entrance that has lost its stuffing. The whole collection is in such bad shape that last September it was simply closed. But there is one shining exception in India. What used to be called the Prince of Wales Museum in Mumbai, 100 years old, now called the CSMVS. Until recently, the CSMVS was just as dilapidated as the rest. But today it has over a million visitors, a handsome government subsidy, and a devoted group of private fundraisers. What saved it was a decision in 2007 to do things differently. It has a completely delightful, energetic director called Mr. Mukherjee. And Mr. Mukherjee decided to ask his staff what they thought the museum should be doing. Chief among the ideas they put forward was that it should reach out far more, not just to Mumbai city dwellers, although it started doing that and now has a bus service that picks up children or prostitutes and brings them into the museum but to other museums around the world. Today, the CSMVS has partnerships with the BM, the Getty, and the Los Angeles County Museum of Art. These kind of international partnerships are about much more than money. Neil McGregor, the BM's director, really does believe that museums can be a force for nation-building and for peace. A year ago... The BM sent its famous Cyrus Cylinder to Mumbai as part of a journey that had already taken it to Iran and to America. Now, Cyrus Cylinder, if you've never seen it, is a clay piece, 2,500, 2,600 years old. It looks a bit like a sort of clay rugby ball. It's covered in cuneiform writing, and it proclaims that Cyrus the Great, Emperor of Persia, would allow anyone who had been imprisoned or enslaved by earlier emperors to return home. And that the statues of their different gods could be returned to their original shrines to be freely worshipped. This was extraordinary. No ruler before Cyrus had ever done anything like this, which is why the Cyrus Cylinder is commonly referred to 
as the first Bill of Human Rights, and there's a replica of it in the foyer of the United Nations in New York. Now, when the BM was thinking of sending Sarah Cylinder to Tehran, Foreign Office told them this was a very, very bad idea. But they sent it all the same. And then, just a few days before the exhibition in Iran was due to call, they get a call from somebody in Tehran who says, can we keep it a little bit longer? Well, it happened that Nowruz, the Persian New Year, was coming up, and um, the Iranians thought that a lot of people would want to come and see it over the holidays. So the BM said yes, rather nervously. But in the end, 500,000 Iranians had queued to see this. And on the day it was due to be returned, a man wearing white gloves packed it up and brought it back to London. This sort of show that demonstrates our common humanity also demonstrates that what unites us is far bigger than what divides us. All over the world, this sort of show is capturing the public imagination. And museums that can do this are the ones that have a really bright future. Thank you.